0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined by a tiny little fraction of the Center for Lit crew. It's just me and Emily. Hi, Emily.
1: It's me. Hello. <laughs>
0: How are you doing today?
1: <laughs> Great. How are you? I'm good.
0: Do you think we can handle this without the rest of the guys?
1: Yeah, sure. We can. Think... Everyone abandoned
0: us. I don't know. What's going on here? Well, that's okay. We're going to overcome and survive and, yea, verily, thrive, shall we? Let's do. So, uh first of all, what's new in the Andrews junior household? uh
1: It's still a million degrees, <laughs> and nothing we can do can fix it. It has always been hot it will always be hot <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so, a
0: literary question: does the uh, temperature in the house inhibit reading?
1: um it definitely inhibits brain processes Oh, here's a fun story uh we were so hot, so, so hot. The It was going to be like a 100 degrees and we don't have air conditioning. And just slowly over the course of the day, as the heat gets trapped in the house, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it just got unbearable. And Ian and I were so grumpy. And so we decided that we needed to leave and get a milkshake. And we got in our car to get a milkshake and Ian backed out of our driveway like he always does, not noticing because our brain functions don't work, oh, no. there was a car in the neighbor's driveway, and he rear-ended our car, oh, and now our no. car is in the body shop because of how hot it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting
0: concept of causation that you're talking about right there.
1: I really think it's true. You just can't think straight.
0: <laughs> so the question, what are we reading, if I applied it to you, would probably fall on on deaf ears.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that it's an appropriate time to talk about existential questions because I'm feeling very existential. <laughs> <laughs> is
0: that a lead-in to the topic for today? It is.
1: Yeah, it is. We are doing What Are We Reading, only it's you that's done the reading. So, But it's not because it's reading? cool
0: in my house. Well, it probably is cooler in my house than yours.
1: I really think it is. <laughs>
0: I have found that I read better in the morning than in the afternoon, and that may, may be due to temperature. <laughs> but I actually am down with a, uh, an episode of What Are We Reading? Because I just finished a book that I wasn't planning to read this year or ever, and it was suggested to me by a friend. And uh, when he mentioned the title and the author, I thought, well, I've never read anything by that author. Certainly not that title, but it's something that I would like to be passingly familiar with. So I got a brand new reading experience in the last couple of weeks that I was actually pretty excited about. So I'm I'm glad I'm on the hot seat today.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to hear about it. So, what are you reading? Well,
0: it is. I know
1: it's it's kind of a cheat because I already I already know. What you're reading, <laughs> but no one else does. So tell us, tell everyone else what you're reading.
0: I I have just finished The Plague, by Albert Camus, and it was suggested to me uh, originally because how appropriate, right? Here we are in the
1: behold a plague,
0: <laughs> right? Behold a plague, and uh, here we are in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Uh, Albert Camus, is one of the great uh, literature literary figures of the 20th century, and you know, won the Nobel Prize in literature and is a famous uh, not only playwright and novelist but philosopher. And this novel is literally about a pandemic. In which the people have to respond, and governments have to respond, and laws are passed, and measures are taken to address mm-hmm. the pandemic, which you know obviously rings true in a million ways uh, with regard to our current situation. And so I thought, well, I should read it. So I did.
1: Is it French? It, it does is, the pandemic happen in France?
0: Uh, yeah. So so Camus grew up in uh, or spent time in his in his youth in Algeria in North Africa. And so the um, the novel is set in a town called Oran. Uh, oh, it's in, in Algeria. Yeah, in Algeria, uh, French Algeria, that is uh, a real city that not only is it a real city, but uh, it was subject to um, several plagues, several outbreaks of bubonic plague in the 16th and 17th centuries, and then also a uh, cholera epidemic in 1849. So it was the, a city that was decimated and beleaguered by plague in very at various times
1: so is it historical
0: fiction w- well not really not really um so i think camu took the fact that he had grown up in algeria and understood the the climate and the topography and the society and then knew of this city that had been touched by plague and sort of put those two things together and wrote a fictional story i see but yeah it's really it was really interesting he set that it, the novel was published in uh, 1947 And um, I think the details surrounding the setting of the story are not super specific to that particular year, although we can assume that it happens uh, shortly after World War II. Hmm. So the the interesting thing about this story is that it's told from the perspective of a chronicler who doesn't reveal his identity until the end. And so the perspective of the narrator is as a... um, a reporter or a historian presenting a history of this plague in this city based on conversations that he's heard and documentary evidence that he has collected and medical records that he's found. But along the way, he sort of slides into omniscient narration and um, sort of gets into the head in particular of this doctor, Dr. Ryu, who is one of the chief doctors in charge of um, spearheading the effort to contain and overcome the pandemic and so we hear this doctor's reaction to the situation reaction to people trying to handle the plague and how it affects them reaction to the progress of the disease and how it spreads and then also his relationships with a group of friends that he assembles over the course of the novel that become the uh the story's main characters essentially a group of people from various walks of life that are thrown together by the plague and sort of band together to make a committee of, of workers trying to organize uh, resistance and organize mm-hmm. their efforts to combat it. And they all come from different walks of life, as I said, and different uh, personalities and importantly, different sets of philosophical presuppositions. Because it becomes clear really quickly that this is only on the surface the story of a of a medical viral pandemic uh, that the the plague is is very quickly obvious as a metaphor for something else.
1: a mm, very French.
0: Yes. Oh, it's very French. Indeed. Indeed. It's a metaphor for something else that the that the various characters of the story are responding to, and they understand the philosophical implications of the idea of plague, and they understand how it compares to things that they're struggling with in their lives. And so the the, the characters, is what I'm trying to say, have a bunch of philosophical conversations.
1: What are the different philosophical positions that they bring to the table?
0: Well, so there's, there is the doctor who is a a man of science and whose primary interest is in easing the suffering of plague victims. And he falls in with a priest. Uh, The doctor's name is Ryu. I don't know how to say French, but Ryu. (laughs) And um, the priest's name is Panelou, and he is a Jesuit. And he responds to the plague by delivering two great sermons and um, dealing with the aftermath of the people's reaction to his sermons. And his first one in the early part of the story is a sermon about how this plague is the judgment of God. And boy, oh boy, do you guys deserve it. Hmm. And so then everybody sort of wrestles with that explanation, with that context. And then later on, after we are privy to the, the horrific death of a child uh, at the hands of the plague, he delivers another sermon where he tries to, what's the word I'm looking for? He tries to embrace the fact that a sovereign God who is a God of love, in fact, allows these sort of things like the suffering of children to happen and urges his parishioners to uh, embrace suffering and doubt as well as uh, blessing and faith. And to somehow sort of compose those two differences and uh, resist the urge to hate God, so we see the we see the priest really wrestling with the implications of human suffering uh, that seems to be unjust and undeserved on the one hand, and the existence of a supposed God of love on the other. So that's one of the main characters that that Ryu sort of interacts with.
1: Hmm. And what's his response to that?
0: Well, they have some really interesting conversations. They, uh, at one point, um, let me read you this this passage, because because as I said, all the characters in this novel are self-consciously philosophical. So they know that they're not just talking about plague, but they're talking about the big issues of life. Uh, at one point, Panelu, the priest says, um, I understand, talking about the suffering of this child, that sort of thing is revolting because it passes our human understanding. But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. And Ryu tries to grasp what Panelou can mean by this. And then he says, he shook his head. No, father, I have a very different idea of love. And until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. Hmm. A shade of disquietude crossed the priest's face. Ah, doctor, he said sadly, I've just realized what is meant by grace. And we readers, as we read that, say, wait a minute. What is meant by grace? What is the doctor trying to say? And Ryu responds, well, it's something I haven't got that I know, but I'd rather not discuss that with you. We're working side by side for something that unites us beyond blasphemy and prayers. And it's the only thing that matters. And so in answer to your question, Ryu's response to the preacher's attempt to reconcile the suffering of the world with the belief in God is, that's beside the point. Hmm. Um, that in response to Panalu saying, grace is the ability to love what we don't understand. Ryu says, no, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to have that conversation with you. There's something else we're doing. It's beyond blasphemy and prayers. And that is trying to ease the suffering of the world. And that's the only thing that matters. And so we get this this pretty strong. And this is throughout the relationship between Ryu and Panalu we get this dichotomy between the things of God, whether or not he exists, and the things of man. And um, Pandalou's kind of presented as somebody who's trying to reconcile those two things, but in the end, what really matters is the things of man.
1: That sounds a lot like uh, the idea that Camus was famous for, which is wrestling with absurdism in the world, the absurd, right? I I was wrong to call him an existentialist. He wasn't. He fought that his whole career he was a philosopher of the absurd and he was always trying to figure out how to handle questions like that how we as conscious beings can encounter meaningless supposed meaningless in the world meaninglessness in the world and that that the problem of pain is right there on the surface of that question
0: yeah absolutely Uh, um he he Camus, or the narrator, who we don't find out the identity of until the very end, um, the narrator has these long passages where he describes, on the one hand, the government's response to the plague and the measures that they put in place to close the town and confine any, everybody inside the gates. And then on the other hand, sort of the the town's response, emotionally and psychologically, to their, their confinement. And he talks about the town kind of as a, as a single personality. And he says at one point thus each of us had to be content to live only for the day alone under the vast indifference of the sky and that sentence sort of describes the town's attitude but also kind of sets a philosophical foundation for for the the context in which all these characters are going to interact underneath the vast indifference of the sky which has visited plague upon the town yep And so there's that inherent meaninglessness that you're talking about that everybody is wrestling with. And I I think it's right that, that you say that um, Camus is not an existentialist and and also not a nihilist. He has one of his characters say at one point, uh, uh, you know, I'm not a nihilist. I'm, I'm looking for the meaning in it all. And the the absurdist would say that there may be no inherent meaning in it, but the search for some sort of significance and meaning is possible and also is good and so yeah
1: the the meaning is the revolt right the attempt to fight with dignity in the face of the indifference of the world yeah every time you turn to do that you're creating the meaning
0: exactly think, right. right exactly right and <laughs> I'm I,
1: try, I'm calling on old old schooling that's buried somewhere in well, my brain <laughs>
0: that's better than what I do um, as a friend of mine said to me recently the only thing I know about existentialism is what I got on Wikipedia <laughs> but at one point, Ryu says, the only thing that uh, that really matters is, I'll, I'll quote you from, from the early part of part one of this, of this novel, there lay certitude, there in the daily round. All the rest hung on mere threads and trivial contingencies. You couldn't waste your time on it. The thing was to do your job as it should be done. Hmm. And so a focus on what we can control in the here and now, kind of in defiance of the vast indifference of the sky this is where meaning comes from and i think it's interesting that he even has the the priest sort of succumb to that to that idea in the end
1: does he was, was that his final word, like a, a, a grace that he's not willing to explain? or is, does he change his mind yet again?
0: Well, I think in, in what he says to the doctor is, I think I've, I understand what it means, what grace means, and what it means is the ability to embrace what you can't understand. And you might call that a religious version of yeah. what the doctor says, right? The religious man who doesn't want to hate God and doesn't want to deny God, nevertheless has to has to confront and embrace, the reality of suffering and the reality of pain and the reality of things that are beyond his ken and he's basically doing in a in a religious way what the atheistic doctor is doing just putting his head down putting his shoulder to the wheel and plodding on ahead hmm. the fact that he would give some religious significance to that is in in camus' world kind of neither here nor there
1: yeah that makes sense
0: but but i think that's really interesting because well, I, I want to say one one other thing about the way Camus presents his story, which is that it is so gentle, and so warm, and so um, compassionate. He talks about all these characters as if they are uh, they're precious to him, and so they become precious to us. And I'm reading this in translation, obviously, because I don't read French, and it's just a it just is really really fine. Um, the language is fine, and the tone and the attitude of the narrator towards these friends is really, really fine, and so you you sympathize with them, and I just think that is that it's a very powerful thing because they don't choose to be atheists, and you don't condemn them as a Christian reader, for example, for being atheists. You have compassion on them because they are stuck in a world which, as far as they can tell, has no inherent meaning. And with a good heart and with a good will, they're trying to, to craft their own meaning in it. And, um, that is a difficult place to be. And, and it's, there's a sense in which in reading the story, you realize that they are in that situation through no fault of their own, other Mm -hmm. than that we're all, you know, the, the doctrine of original sin would assign some fault there. But other than that, they just happen to not be men of faith. Right. And so that's, um, I love the way Camus was able to present that as one of the data of the world that is that is irreducible.
1: Hmm. It sounds like thus far that the book is full of conversations and that, and that wouldn't surprise me if that was all there was, but does it have any kind of narrative structure? Is there like some kind of climactic moment that gives us insight into what we're supposed to... Think of all this?
0: Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's a great question, and and for the benefit of our listeners, I did not know that question was coming. <laughs> but <laughs> but there is uh, there's an inherent plot structure in this because the plague uh, there's an inherent plot structure in the progress of a plague, right? So in the first chapter, we find that rats are starting to crawl out of the of the sewers and the cellars of the city and die in the streets, and uh, the main character is a doctor who wonders about the. Epidemiological significance of this, and then people start dropping dead, and then the question of whether to call it plague and freak everybody out is on the table, and then the government gets involved, and the government closes the town, and now we have this this situation of crisis where everyone is confined, and there are certain characters who are confined, uh, separated from their loved ones, uh, who want to get out and escape uh, and risk imprisonment and and worse in order to be with their loved ones, and then. As the, as the plague progresses uh, and we get regular updates on how many people have died and you know, what the, the deteriorating conditions in the town look like, then the, the tension continues to rise as it looks like it may never end and how are people going to get free and how are they going to deal with, and here's the most important thing, how are they going to deal with the psychological, philosophical problem of their confinement and of the fact that the plague is a form of oppression that they can't do anything about. And so really the question is, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful combination of a, a literary plot question. How will the, the main characters of the story get free? Will the city be freed? Will the gates be opened? Will the plague subside? And a philosophical question. How do we handle an oppression that has been delivered upon us at the hands of an indifferent sky, at the hands of a, um, of a universe that we can't control? that is meaningless and, and oppresses us because of its meaninglessness. And so if, if that parallel is really going on, you would expect the climactic moment of the story plot wise to reinforce that climactic moment of the story philosophically. And I think it does. And this is, this is the moment when I thought, wow, this is just a beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, It's at the very end of the, well, not the end towards the end where uh, Ryu and his, probably his best friend among all his friends, um, a guy named Jean Tarou, who is an, um, a recent arrival to Oran who came from parts unknown and is sort of an amateur philosopher. And he's been um, jumping in to help with the committee to uh, that Ryu heads up to to help resist the plague and uh, just been kind of Ryu's confidant and just a really good friend to him. And they have this sort of Conversation towards the end of the novel, where Taru tells his life story, and presents himself as another candidate for an interpretive framework, kind of like Father Panelou, who was the the priest. But Taru is not a believer; he's an atheist, and his goal in life, since he saw injustice um, when he was a child, his goal in life is to oppose government totalitarianism and, in particular, the death penalty. And um, he says to, to Ryu at one point, I want to be a saint without believing in God. That's my goal. <laughs> and so he's got a different philosophical perspective, right? On the relationship between the supernatural and the material. And, and he present sort of Camus sort of presents him as another potential way to handle these problems. But plot wise, the, the, the climactic moments happens right after this conversation, the two of them decide to go swimming and, uh, so they take their car out past the, past the barricades. They have papers that, that can get them past the guards down to the beach on the Mediterranean. And um, he describes the scene with, with beautiful poetic language so you can tell something significant is about to happen. And just as they're about to dive in, um, Camus says this, or the narrator says this, turning to Teru, Ryu caught a glimpse of his friend's face and a glimpse of the same happiness A happiness that forgot nothing, not even plague, not even murder. And so they're about to have this moment together where happiness is uh, a possession of theirs. And it comes, this happiness does, in embracing murder and plague and suffering. It forgets Mm -hmm. nothing. So they undressed, it says, and Ryu dived in first. And then he describes their swim in the ocean. And uh, it's interesting, he describes the temperature of the water And he describes how Ryu hears the sound of Teru's strokes and of his breathing and continually measures the distance between them and um, figures out who's swimming faster and how far away they are from each other and how far away they are from their goal and the feel of the water and the sound of the splashing. Uh, He heard the sound of beaten water, louder and louder, amazingly clear in the hollow and silence of the night. Teru was coming up with him. He could now hear his breathing. Ryu turned and swam level with his friend, timing his stroke to Teru's. But Teru was the stronger swimmer, and Ryu had to put on speed to keep up with him. And it describes this swim for kind of a long time. And you start to wonder, Mm -hmm. why are the physical details of this swim, of these two friends swimming together, uh, so important and the subject of so much narrative? Well, you get it in this final paragraph of the scene. It says, They dressed and started back. Neither had said a word, but they were conscious of being perfectly at one, and the memory of this night would be cherished by them both. When they caught sight of the plague watchman, Ryu guessed that Taru, like himself, was thinking that the disease had given them a respite, and this was good, but now they must set their shoulders to the wheel again
1: interesting so it's not it, it it would be easy to assume that with no God the answer would be preserving survivalist biological life at all costs but instead it seems like it's an embracing of life as as experience in the face of danger
0: I think so I think that's right and in particular not just life but all but human love but friendship hmm what what Ryu and Teru have as friends and this is just the last in a long uh, you know string of conversations and interactions that they've had what they have is maybe even because of the the oppression of the indifferent sky they have that in common that suffering in common and they embrace it and they embrace each other and i think the focus on the physical details of that scene is an underscoring of of the importance of the the world of men, the human world, the material world to this kind of happiness.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's funny because I, my own worldview has another ground of happiness finally. And I see that in one, from one angle as, as insufficient and as poor. Um, right. But, <laughs> but if you grant the circumstances that Ryu and Teru were, were born with, if you grant the circumstances that Camus was born with, it's an honest attempt to create meaning, hmm. and it's he's so persuasive in his um, in his sensitive, compassionate pre- presentation of it that you um, you leave with a lot of respect for his effort.
1: Interesting, that is really beautiful. It I do really love uh, the 20th century European authors and philosophers and it's I I don't really know why it seems like I shouldn't given that I share the same groundwork as you but Mm -hmm. I do think that it's that um, it's what you were saying that if you you have to grant the circumstances in which they were born and given what they had seen the suffering in the world that they were witness to they found uh, the Christian narrative to be insufficient and that is not their fault, right? It's the fault of whoever is articulating it. And so by giving us their own perspective, it requires a rearticulation of the Christian narrative and a new reframing of it for these people. And we can't do that unless you read it, you know, unless you have compassion on them. Right. I think that's true.
0: I think that's true. And, um, there are a couple of thoughts I have related to that. That's a really good comment. Uh, Camus won the Nobel Prize in 1957, and he gave a speech in Accepting It that is one of the most magnificent speeches about the role of the artist that I've ever read. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to read a section of it. Uh, He says, for myself, I cannot live without my art, but I've never placed it above everything. If on the other hand, I need it, it is because it cannot be separated from my fellow men. And it allows me to live such as I am on one level with them. It is a means of stirring the greatest number of people by offering them a privileged picture of common joys and sufferings. It obliges the artist not to keep himself apart. It subjects him to the most humble and the most universal truth. And often, he who has chosen the fate of the artist because he felt himself to be different soon realizes that he can maintain neither his art nor his difference unless he admits that he is like the others. The artist forges himself to the others midway between the beauty he cannot do without and the community he cannot tear himself away from. That's why true artists scorn nothing. They are obliged to understand rather than to judge. Man, isn't that great? That idea that the artist is on the one hand, he sees himself as an individual given a particular ability to see and a particular ability to articulate. And he sees himself as different in this way. But all of the raw material that he's using comes from the community that he belongs to. And uh, what you were saying about Camus' history, I mean, he was basically, his history is coterminous with the 20th century. The community that he belongs to was involved as a whole, as a community, in seeing the paucity of the answers that traditional religion was giving for the terrors Mm -hmm. and suffering of the world. Uh, in, in a sense, that's the community that he was born into, and he had to uh, use those tools, use those materials to speak to them.
1: Uh, the uh, the other... The, you read in the section when they're swimming together something about how the memory of the time would be what sustains them. Is yes. That right? Is that yes, right? Yes,
0: exactly right.
1: It, isn't that what he's doing by writing it down in his art? He's preserving a memory for them to call back to uh, in the face of suffering.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's another example of a a grasping, a reaching, a stretching for something beyond the the difficulty of today's experience, or maybe even not beyond the difficulty of today's experience, but beyond the limitation of today's experience. I mean, it, it testifies to that urge in all of us to be a part of something grander and something larger than what we can touch. And, mm-hmm. uh, if, if faith hasn't been given to you, memory might be the next best thing mm-hmm. in, in the situation in Oran, in the plague. Um, Camus says at one point, or the narrator says at one point, the future has been taken away because we can't know because the gates are shut and we, uh, we hope for a future, but it keeps being denied to us. And so in a sense, the future has been taken away. The present is miserable. Mm-hmm. All that's left to us is the memory of the past and so i do think that's that that is one of the one of the ways that you can satisfy that urge to transcend your own experience hmm. interesting that the uh, the absurdist and the existentialist of the 20th century both have that urge but because of their atheism they don't look to satisfy that urge with faith
1: well yeah, i was just going to say they're not they're not wrong they're just missing some pieces.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting that that, um, that Kierkegaard in the 19th century gave him the piece that they're missing explicitly.
1: Right, they were building on what he said, but they rejected that. Yeah, I think that's
0: really interesting because you know Kierkegaard is often mentioned as sort of the proto-existentialist of the 19th century, right? The, right? the absurdness of the world. He wrote on the absurd a lot. And he basically said, here's an example of the absurd. I realize that I must act in this particular way, but... Um, the laws of nature and of of God and ethics and morals forbid me, and so those those two things don't don't match up, and the the human urge to to see meaning in the world and the apparent meaninglessness of things um, is overwhelming. And Kierkegaard's mm-hmm. response to that is to embrace it on the one hand and say you're exactly right, and then to say the impulse of faith is the solution.
1: Well, even. Dostoevsky, the other one people point to as the proto-existentialist, Father Zosima and Brothers Karamazov literally does, he falls to his feet and embraces physically the, the father, right? Uh, oh yeah. The, the patriarch in doing the same thing, he's embracing the, the suffering, embracing the absurd of the situation.
0: Right. And so I, I'm left to wonder with that example of Kierkegaard, with that example of Dostoevsky, why is it missing from existentialism and absurdism?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, that that drives us back eventually to a theological point, which is that you're, you got eyes to see what you have eyes to see. And that is somehow a an aspect of plague, an aspect of, of reality that we don't have any control over.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me that the major questions that you said that forces them into these contemplations is the death of a child because that's also, in Ivan Karamazov, right, that's his big hurdle that he can't jump over is the suffering of children, the suffering right. of innocence. Uh, so some people can get over that hump and others can't, and nobody can really satisfactorily explain it. It's a mystery.
0: Do you mean that they can't explain the suffering of children or they can't explain why some people can get around it and some people can't?
1: Both, I yeah. guess. I, I was talking about the first, but I think the second is true as well, that- it's a gift of faith to be able to jump over that
0: hurdle. Yeah, I think that's really important and that's the that's sort of the meta version of the of this story that's that really is powerful to me the more i think about it that the the citizens of Oran are visited by plague and there's there's a scene in the in late in the novel where one of the old patients is is clucking and and giggling and laughing about this fact and he's he, it seems like he's He's okay with it, and he even thinks it's fun to watch. And Ryu asked him why he's laughing, and he says, the plague is life. The plague is everything. Mm-hmm. And we're all, um, we're all visited by it through no fault or decision or uh, through no, no fault of our own. We didn't do anything to bring it on. And I think that applies not only to disease in the literal sense and not only to suffering generally in the, the metaphorical sense, but also to belief, to faith in the theological sense. We um, yeah. we have what we have, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I
0: just think remembering that makes you uh, gives you empathy for empathy for these writers.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and man, I, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is how you would say that this why it's relevant for now. I mean, obviously, it's relevant now with our own plague going on. But I wondered how you thought it spoke to as particularly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I, it was interesting when I started reading it, I think I might've mentioned this already. I thought, well, this is going to be a one-to-one comparison to our p- current political and biological medical situation. And it was very quickly obvious that that was, that it's just a metaphor for something else. And so I, I think the, the connections are much deeper than this is a story about a widespread disease where the gates of the city are closed. And this is a story about uh, handling the, um, handling the fact that we're hemmed in, by our circumstances, physical and spiritual and psychological and philosophical alike.
1: I was thinking that when you said that the the character who said the plague is life, that we've kind of, I mean, I've at least experienced that over the past several months, that being limited and being restricted and kind of being forced to spend long periods of time with yourself, that does it just makes life kind of uh, open and clear before you, right? Like mm. you have to be forced to contemplate some of the more difficult questions of life. Mm.
0: Yeah, he, the narrator talks about that a lot, that the confinement starts to work on uh, the people as a group and individually, and they start paying attention to deeper issues and dealing with them in a way that they wouldn't if things were all were going along. He doesn't go far enough to say that was, that's a good thing, or it's kind of a blessing. He just comments on the fact that that's how, that's how people behave. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably, that probably has resonance with the experience that we've all had in these last five months.
1: I wonder if this is the kind of thing that would be helpful to read for maybe not even just while the plague is happening, but afterwards, Mm-hmm. Uh, relating to our fellow human beings mm-hmm. who have also gone through it and may mm-hmm. not have that, uh, the same thing that Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky had, mm-hmm. you know, um, that may have more of a response like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think you're probably right. There's a scene at the end where um, the narrator comments that the plague finally lifts, it, it dies away. So those of us who are waiting for the end of COVID 19 can take courage. Um, oh, and by the way, I didn't mention that that um, the plague in question here in Camus' novel is bubonic plague, like from the Middle Ages. So it's actually.
1: Can I just say that that is a million times worse? Do you know what happens in bubonic plague? Uh, yes,
0: unless Camus was making it up, it's terrible.
1: Isn't it that your uh, insides turn to liquid and exit your body? <laughs> I don't
0: know. I didn't. There wasn't a scene of that that's, in this novel. I but. did
1: take middle age history, and <laughs> I believe that's what they told us. <laughs> well, there are
0: some. There are some fairly graphic descriptions of of agony in this in this novel. But but we can take heart. It does finally um, go away, and the the rats reappear. They all died first, and they reappear, and everybody's glad because it means it's over. And the gates are finally opened, and uh, lovers are are restored to each other. Families are reunited and uh, he describes with great poignancy and tenderness the the way that those emotions are um, allowed to run. And then they everyone's a little bit awkward because it's been so long. And then he makes this comment. He says, I I don't remember exactly where it is, but he says it appeared that everyone whose hopes were limited to um, physical reunions with their loved ones got what they longed for hmm. with the exception of the people who had lost them to the plague but that people whose hopes extended and and were were more than just physical were disappointed and it's another way that he he limits his his treatment of his answers to the questions of life to what we can actually experience in the here and now and maybe not even just in the here and now but in the physical world of of flesh and bones
1: well yeah that i was i had that thought in the very early stages of the quarantine which the things that you rely on to create meaning in your life it kind of draws them to the surface and how many of them are fake because you can't if they're not there when you're stuck in your house are they really there at all yeah. right like travel or hmm career success you know all the things that that get taken away from us and that time turn out to be shallow
0: yeah yeah at one point taru the guy who went swimming with the with the narrator uh at the end he says i'm just i'm just hoping for peace of mind that's what i really want is peace of mind because he's he's basically been his whole life on a crusade against the death penalty and um he eventually dies of plague one of the last victims and uh Ryu says he knew that Teru was, was after peace of mind. Perhaps he had found it in death, uh, past when it would do him any good. Hmm. And so that's sort of the object lesson in in, in the, his observation, that those those of us who were after something human, after something physical, were satisfied in the end. Maybe not those of us who were shooting for higher game. Interesting. He says at one point, it's, I don't know who's saying this, I too, he says, I'm no different. I can't remember who it is. But what matter? Death means nothing to men like me. It's the event that proves them right. Death is the event that proves them right. I mean, here's what, the,
1: what do you take that to mean? Well,
0: I think that this is the foundation of the entire worldview from which this novel is, is built. That uh, the world that we know and can deal with is bounded by death. It's a physical world, it's a material world, and at the point of death, it ends. And so all of the philosophical stances we take and all of the tools we use to make sense and meaning of this world, if they are not taken in the shadow of death, uh, then they are frivolous. Mm -hmm. Death is the thing that validates and verifies um, the efforts of atheistic men to make meaning in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. So the the narrator who says that is is essentially taking that taking that side of a guy who's grown up and adopted inherited um, being born into this atheism, and he's got in in the end he's got death to prove him right. Hmm. It's amazing to me that a guy who says that so eloquently, so persuasively, says something that I frankly disagree with can be so um, compelling.
1: Right. Well, and there's so many things about it that, that are true, but not, but not quite. I don't know. You know, yeah, I do. Like it, it's yeah. so close. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, I, it makes me want to go read more Kierkegaard because I think, um, I think he had his finger on something, The there's a, some sort of disconnect between the world of God and the world of men that is a wall between the two that is that is breached by faith, but that absent that breach is bounded by something like absurdity. Yep. And I think Camus has his finger on the absurd part. Maybe, maybe, you know, Kierkegaard uh, provides the resolution that I'm sort of looking for at this minute. I don't know.
1: Well, you'll have to let us know when you find out.
0: Well, maybe I'll, uh, maybe the, my next what are we reading will be something by Kierkegaard. I don't know.
1: Cool. That sounds great existentialism who knew who knew we
0: do everything here <laughs> on bibliophiles don't we all the things actually there's and, and only two did we suffer we did not just two of us 40 percent of the crew <laughs> we embraced the suffering that's right we did <laughs> <laughs> emily thank you for making making me the star and the hero today i really appreciate you throwing me softball questions the whole hour oh, that
1: was super fun i don't get to talk about those guys very often so this was great <laughs> i love it <laughs>
0: Well, let's go ahead and adjourn this one and we will uh, put it up on the the services that deliver podcasts to the world and go get to work on another one. Thanks for coming, everyone. Emily, it's been a pleasure.
1: Yes. (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) I love it.
0: Well, my friends, thank you for tuning in. Until we meet again, happy reading.
1: Happy reading.
0: Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.